Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, Pastor Jason Goodham and myself continue our discussion on Luther's theology of two kingdoms. Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran. I am not Pastor Brett Poe. But I am still Pastor Jason. You are, and I miss Brett. Brett, where are you? Yeah, we're wandering through the wilderness without Brett. There's a light uh, at the end of whatever tunnel we're in. It might be a freight train, but there still is a light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) Or a train wreck. Yeah, well, (laughs) um, the two aren't mutually exclusive. Now you can blame me for that. Um, I would like to pick up a little bit of what we talked about yesterday. So you went, just last podcast, we talked about you getting back from St. Louis and working on your demon, mm-hmm. uh, talking about the two kingdoms, mm-hmm. uh, Luther's concept of the two kingdoms. And so I want to present a question to you, and I'll try to make it as succinct as I can. As we as pastors baptize infants and then obviously encourage and equip the parents to raise their children according to the Word of God, to make disciples of Christ within the family— and bring them into confirmation, confirming that they are continuing the faith of their baptism, that that seed of faith that was planted in the heart and mind of a child has indeed taken root. How do we then move them from confirmands into active participating members of the church, but also active participating members of the society in their vocation as being new creations in Christ Jesus? That's a great question. And I think if I had a succinct answer to it, Uh, I would be putting it in a book and making lots and lots of money because it seems like 90% of the books in Christian publishing are are trying to help the church figure out what the church does and how to do a better job at it. That, you know, this has been for 2000 years of church history, people have been pursuing the question, how is the church best to be the church? Well, and it's funny because it seems like it's either one side or the other. It's either too much on the head knowledge, academic side of it, or it's too much on the do, do, do side of it, like forget what Rick Warren said that, you know, forget the creeds. We're going to... These not creeds. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a balance between the two. How do you get to that balance? Well, and the answer, uh, especially for my classes in St. Louis last week, the answer is Christian formation, is the act not just of training Christians, which is a part of it, but forming Christians. Mm. And so that uh, the very core of who we are is formed and informed by the church for the Christian life. So you use the word catechesis. So if someone's never heard that word before, could you define what that word means? Yeah, catechesis is the uh, practice of passing on the faith uh, through instruction. Uh, the, the Greek word kateko, uh, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, really, uh, we get the word echo from that, and it means to sound back and forth. And so catechesis is the sounding back and forth of correct doctrine or of information. And so what happens is that the teacher will ask a question which he already knows the answer to, uh, to a student, and the student needs to respond with the correct information. So this isn't a, uh, you know, a small group church Bible study where uh, the leader of the small group church Bible study will, will ask, well, what do you think about this passage? What does this passage mean to you? No, this is, this is something that there is a right and a wrong answer to mm-hmm. in our faith, and you need to communicate that to me, and then you need to be memorizing that information and incorporating a part of your Christian understanding of the world. So someone would see that as indoctrination. How would you respond to that? That is absolutely indoctrination. We have uh, this bad kind of indoctrination, which would be brainwashing, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, you know, the best 
way I can illustrate that is if you ever had a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness come to your front door and you've tried to engage them in conversation, you know, there are a few things that you can say that will reset that conversation and they'll go back to their sales pitch. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we do want to be indoctrinating our kids so that they understand and know and confess the faith. Uh, The faith is more than simply my personal relationship with Jesus. It's more than just me and Jesus, Mm -hmm. although there is a personal aspect to our faith. The faith has a proper contact or content. Content. There we go. The faith has a proper content. And what I mean by that is simply the, uh, the existence of heresy in the church would imply that there is also correct teaching that is necessary. Because if you can be out of bounds, yeah. you can be accurate. Absolutely. And Paul talked about that a lot. He mentioned teach what accords to sound doctrine. And I think we, you know, doctrine kind of gets a bad rap. If you understand how doctrine is defined within the Bible, how the Bible chooses Mm -hmm. to define doctrine, it's the Greek word didaskali. And it's kind of where we get the word didactic from. Mm -hmm. Um, But what it means is the teaching of the whole. And so good, sound, healthy doctrine is a summary teaching of what the whole of Scripture teaches, how God has chosen to reveal himself through his special revelation of the Bible. Yeah. And today... If you tell someone the word doctrine or if you bring up the topic of doctrine, they're going to get glazed over, you know, their eyes are going to go distant and shallow and, and there'll be a little drool coming out of the side of their mouth. As they, they kind of get or they'll just run. Yeah, or they'll run away, comatose state. Uh, most people equate doctrine with, with the, the super... You know, finite distinctions of academic Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the the caricature would be the doctrine is the answer to the question: How many angels can dance on the head of a pin, yeah. or can God create a rock so big even He can't lift it? But doctrine, simply speaking, is the truth from Scripture. Yeah. So if you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's doctrine, that somehow you had to learn by hearing, by preaching, that Jesus is your Lord and Jesus is your Savior. If Mm -hmm. that truth is found in Scripture, then it's accurate doctrine. Doctrine also gives us the distinction between the denominations. So we have a way of studying of, well, does what I believe about Scripture, what I have come to learn about Scripture, does that line up with what my church is teaching? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important. It's interesting. Um, I served a congregation. I'm going to ask to be a little bit honest here and ask permission to speak to truth and love. Uh, As I served a congregation out in South Dakota, um, the congregation was wonderful. A lot of really mature Christians. It was such a privilege to be out there. But one thing we experienced was a lot of people coming in from either either the ELCA or uh, Methodist or or other different denominations. Um, I know that not all of them are super liberal, but these particular ones were quite liberal. And as they came in, uh, I fashioned our new members class around the five fundamentals that flow from the doctrine of justification, as we read in our dogmatics book in seminary from Mueller. And from the doctrine of justification flow five fundamental doctrines of the Christian religion, and that includes the doctrine of God, Trinity, two natures of Christ, uh, doctrine of original sin, uh, the doctrine of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the authority of Scripture. And I based the whole um, new members class around that, and it was amazing that inevitably in each lesson, I would hear from one person in every class, oh, I've never heard this before. Yeah, it's it's remarkable how... Uh, quickly we learn the basics. Uh, I think a great way to illustrate this is I took three years of Spanish uh, in high school in three semesters. Mm. I was just immersed in Spanish. I was When I graduated, I was fluent in Spanish. I could have a conversation with someone in Spanish. And, uh, and the jobs I worked in Bible school and in college, I would 
utilize that, and then I just stopped using it. So you couldn't lead a Spanish service right now, could you? I can't even read it anymore. I, I recognize some words, but I've lost all the grammar. I've lost all the syntax. I've lost most of my vocabulary, and it's useless to me, and it's because I didn't keep up with utilizing it. The same thing works with doctrine. We have this false kind of concept of Christian maturity in the church. And Christian maturity means that we communicate the basics, the catechism to our kids, and then we move on into more speculative interesting things as adults as we mature, which is kind of why, from my point of view as a pastor, no one wants to talk about the sacraments anymore. Yeah, mm. We get our babies wet, yeah. and uh, they're adopted as children, maybe some will say. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have communion whenever we have communion, and something happens there. Yeah. Uh, but we've not taught our Christians, our Christian adults, to rely on the sacraments for the assurance of salvation. We've not... Uh, communicated to them how the sacraments work for us because of the efficacy of God's word. Mm -hmm. And so you have this one group uh, on one end of the spectrum that thinks the sacraments are your golden ticket to heaven yep. uh, and nothing matters. You have this other group on the other end of the spectrum that are terrified of the sacraments because the first group got it wrong. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and where formation happens is learning that I can, in fact, biblically derive assurance of salvation from the sacraments. And if, what I'm hearing from you is that... Even though we are taught the fundamentals, we can never leave the fundamentals because, quite frankly, we need to continually return to them, continually grow in our knowledge of the fundamentals, and continue to apply them then to our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're doing a Bible study at Faith here uh, on the book of Hebrews, and a couple months ago we were in Hebrews 5 and 6, and that's where you find the, the spiritual meat versus spiritual milk discussion and then spiritual maturity. And mm -hmm. uh, Hebrews 6, the translation uh, makes it seem like we're to leave the elementary principles of the faith and go on to more mature things. What it really says is that we are carried into Christian maturity by the basics of the faith. And the best way to highlight this uh, is to think about the ABCs. Yeah. Uh, now, you and I, unless we have young kids, and I have young kids, probably haven't independently and voluntarily sung the ABCs in a while. Yeah. Uh, I can conclude that, right? I haven't. <laughs> uh, uh, yet this entire... Uh, podcast and in our sermons on Sunday and in your communication with the grocery store cashier, guess what? You used your ABCs. Uh, they're the fundamental building blocks of language. We just as adults ha have made them a part of who we are and mm -hmm. we use them more artfully than my three-year-old does. And it becomes a part of our nature. I remember played hockey um, and in high school I had a great hockey coach and he just really drilled the fundamentals into us because he basically said, once you got the fundamentals down and they're so a part of you and your muscle memory is there, you can respond to any given situation with those fundamentals intact and those basic fundamentals in operation and you can play the game better because you don't really have to think about it too much. You can just move, twist, turn, get up, you know, whatever you have to do. Uh, and you can do it much more, much more effectively when those fundamentals are really key in your time in practice or in your time in preparation. And the same for me. I was a hockey player. I was a baseball player and a basketball player. But especially in basketball, uh, my coach taught me there are three ways to win a basketball game. Mm. The first way is you have more talent than the other team. Mm -hmm. I and mean, you just can't overcome it. You're just that much better. We had a team like that in my district. It wasn't a lot of fun playing them. <laughs> the second way you win a basketball game is with a gimmick. 
mm. is that you learn how to do something the team hasn't prepared to stop, and you just beat them by surprise. And that can only happen once or twice and yeah. be effective. Well, yeah. the thing is, the first one will go away either with attrition yep. as the players move on or a better coach team can overcome a t- more talented team. Yep. We see that happen all the time. Yep. Uh, gimmicks can be figured out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the third way is to be more fundamentally sound than the other team. Exactly. And this coach said he learned a lesson from the coach that coached him. And when he was you know, starting to coach high school uh, basketball, he asked his coach, well, you know, how much, uh, what percentage of practice should I, you know, devote to certain things? And, and the, the mentor said to him, well, look at it this way. What percentage of the game of basketball is rebounding? Mm, yeah. And the guy said, well, 65, 70%. And the guy looked him in the eye and said, then 65 to 70% of every practice should be rebounding. Yeah, exactly. And once rebounding becomes second nature, then you know things like that happen. Yeah. We as Lutherans look at the catechism that way. The catechism is divided up into five succinct parts, mm-hmm. right? You've got the law, in the Ten Commandments, you've got the gospel and the creeds, yep. you've got prayer in the Lord's Prayer, you've got the sacraments, and then you've got vocation right mm-hmm. at the end of it. Ooh, there uh, it is, vocation. vocation. Vocation, sanctification, however you want to say it. I yeah. say vocation mm-hmm. because people get sanctification wrong yeah. a lot of the time. But if we base our Christian life, our Christian existence on those five foundational principles, we learn to think and act like a Christian all of the time. Mm. So it's not just an academic pursuit. It's not an academic pursuit. It's a life pursuit. Is that, again, uh, what we discussed last week with the two kingdoms, Mm -hmm. is that as a Christian, you are constantly living under God's gospel, his Mm -hmm. grace and mercy. You are, because of Jesus Christ, justified. But as a Christian, you are simultaneously living life before your neighbor Mm -hmm. and in need of being rightly oriented to your neighbor, in need of that righteousness, in need of loving your neighbor. Being an ambassador. Being an ambassador for Christ. Now, the law, which teaches you how to love your neighbor, has no more bearing on your vertical relationship with God. Uh, That is wrapped up 100% in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But the gospel, which is your vertical relationship with God, has nothing to say about how you live your life as a Christian before your neighbor because the gospel frees you to live selflessly before your neighbor. It doesn't tell you how to do it, but it frees you. And in that freedom in Christ Jesus is where is where we live as a living sacrifice, as we live as an act of worship to a holy God who is worthy. And I always tell my confirmation students and my kids too, and we don't do this because we have to. Christ has freed us from the law, the accusationary part of the law. And the law moves from our accuser to now our gentle teacher, mm-hmm. as Second Timothy chapter 3 uh, talks about. And so as God continues to form us and transform us through the power of his word and the power of his grace, um, how do we then make that transition as we asked before? How do we get confirmands to be active participating members in the church and in society in a way that doesn't lose sight of the fundamentals that are rooted in the fundamentals, but they are living out their vocation? And I'm not just trying to say that just to say not the to word, me. But, to, yeah, <laughs> but to live that out as, as God has asked us to, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Oh, and this is one of the things I pulled from James Davis and Hunter's book, To Change the World. The one thing he said that really stuck with me in all of that, it doesn't happen overnight. No. It might not even happen in a generation. Mm-hmm. But what you and I as pastors are trying to do and ought to be doing, and what you and I as fathers are trying to do and ought to be doing, is incorporating uh, the faith 
into every part of our lives, yeah. which means the one thing I struggle with uh, as a person who loves catechesis is at home catechesis. I, mm. It is a constant battle to get the truth of Scripture in the form of the catechisms before my kids and talking about it. The mm. devotion, family devotions are a battle for us. Yeah. Uh, now, where I'm working on it here at Faith is that every part of the activity of the church is designed for formation. It means my preaching mm-hmm. is designed to bring deliver assurance of salvation with the gospel yeah. and also to inform how to live through the law. The application of the, the application. Yeah. Uh, the, the educational parts of church, the Bible study and Sunday school are doing the same thing. But what we're confessing, what we're moving back toward is a lifetime of catechesis instead mm. of just an error or an era or period of catechesis, that this is ongoing for the 98-year-old as well as for the 9-year-old. You yeah. Know? yeah, you never stop growing. It's amazing. We think that, oh, I've heard that before and oh, I've talked about God. We've talked about the Trinity before. So how in the world could we ever think that we would know everything there is to know about an unknowable God, in a sense? He's chosen to reveal himself through Scripture, and he's revealed himself that way. But God is transcendent, and there's no way we're going to know everything there is to know about God because you'd have to be God himself to do that. You know, even in heaven, we're going to have all eternity to know about this wonderful God. So how in the world could we ever master all that, how, all of how God has chosen to reveal himself in Scripture and master that just in one or two sittings. Yeah, and, and, and the answer is we can't even do that in a lifetime. But th- that's the strength from my perspective of Lutheran theology is that it's not a quick fix. It's not a system, a logical progression. But Lutheran theology done rightly acknowledges the tension between two dualities and it tries to live in that tension. For example, uh, as Christians, Luther taught that we're simultaneously righteous and sinner. That's the simul justice et peccator yeah. uh, that, that comes forward. So that means that you are not all the way sanctified. Mm-hmm. That you, just because you are declared righteous uh, in the gospel, you still have sin that clings closely. Yeah. But it also means that in, in the depth and wretchedness of your sin... You're still saved. Yeah. And in and, and that tension is where we live. You know, that wonderful section of Scripture in Romans 7 where Paul's like, this is the very thing I want to yep. do I don't do, and the very thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I do, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And, of course, the answer is Jesus. Yeah, well, who thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Yeah. And then that most unfortunate chapter break in all of Scripture <laughs> from Romans 7 to Romans 8, because Romans know. 8 puts the exclamation point that's on it. it. There is it. therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so the law always accuses so that you will always find a savior, but the law never condemns because you have a savior, and then the law always shows you how to live in light of your savior. Yeah, and I think we kind of lose sight that it is that freedom in Christ Jesus, that justification by grace through faith alone, where everything flows out of. You know, I, I know that we have this tendency as human beings that, like, if you're giving an, given an extravagant gift by somebody, you feel like you got to do something for it. you got to, well, all that person gave me a car, so I, I better be really nice, or I'm going to use it to pick up their kids and take them in. And we kind of feel that with this gracious gift of salvation. Like, oh, I need to kind of do devotions a little bit more, or I need to do this. Mm-hmm. But we cannot add to the righteousness of Christ. And so works that flow out of that justification by grace through faith alone are never a means of grace. They're always a response of grace. They flow out of grace. It's just this wonderful act of worship to a God who is worthy, who has paid it all, uh, and and this wonderful privilege we have. 
with this as jar vessels of jars and clay of this wonderful treasure that we have within us, and that's the salvation of Christ Jesus. And that's what Luther was saying to his Roman Catholic accusers who would hold James chapter 2 in front of his face and yep. mock him. And Luther would say, yeah, absolutely. Faith without works is debt, except faith is never without works. Mm-hmm. Is that a living and active faith is a faith that is loving the neighbor because we have been provided everything we need in Christ. The, Amen. The great truth of the Christian life lived in vocation, lived under the gospel is that we're no longer competing with our neighbor for good works to impress God. Amen. As we are wholly approved in Christ before God, and so we can live a life of selfless love for our neighbor. The sin means that we're not always doing that, which is why we have the church. We're always repenting. We're always being forgiven. We're always shown how to go out and live the Christian life where we're always failing. We're always in need of forgiveness. So we're always repenting and so on and so forth. And so that growth never ends. And we continually return to the cross. Absolutely. And the mercy that flows from his atoning sacrifice. A uh, good place to end it. I'd love to close by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. <laughs> For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please look us up on the web at beinglutheran.com. Also, join us next week as Pastor Brett Bow returns, and I and Pastor Jason Goodham, along with Pastor Brett Bow, continue our discussion on the Ten Commandments. God bless you, and have a great week.